forget this during the announcements, so I'm going to go ahead and insert it here. I received a note from Joanna Crick. I want to thank the ladies uh, for the outpouring of love and generosity at my shower yesterday. I had such a wonderful time and was overwhelmed by everyone's kindness. And uh, there's another reason I wanted to read that announcement right now, because it, um, it does a pastor's heart good and and uh, because it ties in so wonderfully with what we're going to turn to now. To 1 Corinthians 13, please. 1 Corinthians 13, we return to this morning. And so to that chapter, I invite you to turn your attention with me again. For the past couple of weeks and for a week before Christmas, we've been reading this same passage again and again. And uh, here we are again today. And Lord willing, we'll be reading it again and again in the next uh, couple or few weeks, which uh, repetition, I want you to know, I do not regret, um, even if you do. Uh, Every time we return to this chapter, it seems to me uh, that uh, we've come here to Corinthians, not only uh, to the centerpiece of the book itself of this letter, but um, to the centerpiece of our lives. This has struck me. This is so worth Repeating this chapter is repeating and repeating again and again until we get this down and are living this. Reminds me of a story, if I may beg your indulgence, of a young pastor who came to his first charge right out of seminary. And uh, the ink still wet on his seminary diploma. So he started off his, worship, his, uh, his uh, ministry with a wonderful sermon. Uh, A bit convicting, but uh, what do you expect from a young man bolting from the gate? And and it was wonderfully received. So their hopes were high when they came back the second week. But then I heard the young preacher preach the same exact sermon again from the week before. Uh, if if uh, I've told you this one before, don't stop me because we're going to tell it to you anyway. Uh, they were a bit confused. They came back the third week and uh, this young preacher preached the same sermon again. Well, they were a pretty forgiving group, but now they're starting to get a little bit uh, irritated and starting to wonder. But as I say, they were a forgiving congregation, overlooked it. Came back the fourth week, certain that uh, surely their their young parson would have a a new sermon to preach. But no, preach the same sermon the fourth time. Well, now their patience was running out. They chose a delegation of people to go to their new pastor and inquire, demand, really, why would you preach the same sermon four weeks in a row? What's going on? And he looked them straight in the eye, and he said to them, as soon as you obey this one, then I will give you another. (laughs) If we could master this chapter in our lives, this 1 Corinthians 13, put this chapter into action, we will uh, have gone a long way to mastering the Christian life. Is not love the summation, the essence of the law, according to Jesus, to love God above all and our neighbors as ourselves. That's the whole law. 
But what is love? Paul tells us here, not so much by defining love in the abstract, because he certainly doesn't here, doesn't even try, but to rather shows us love in action. Remember what we have here are 15 verbs. Action translated in our English Bible. 15 verbs, however they're translated in your Bible. In fact, in Greek, they are verbs. Love is better lived, better exercised than defined. So Paul is telling us how to live love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help because we want to be this. We want to do this and not do this. We want to do everything that love does and not do everything it doesn't. So Father, we pray that You will open our hearts to hear your voice, open our eyes to see ourselves reflected in the mirror of your law, and mold us that we may conform more and more until our lives are shaped like 1 Corinthians 13. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. Last time we were reminded that love does not envy. I don't think we've gone very far from that this week in this matter of arrogance and boasting because we know what lies behind both, behind envy and pride. 
and boasting rather. It is pride. Envy desires what others have or what they are. Pride or arrogance, which reveals itself in boasting, is closely related because while envy desires what others have, pride desires that others envy what I have. They're very close to each other, aren't they? Envy sets its green eyes jealously on others, while pride sets its eyes on self and would have all, all other eyes do the same, and both to the same end, and for the same reason, with the same goal, the aggrandizement of me. And like envy, pride can be a very subtle thing. Very subtle, yet powerful force in our hearts, concealing itself even from ourselves. Though it rises up and takes hold of us before we know it. Thomas Shepard, the New England Puritan, author of a great works on the Christian life, first president of Harvard, was found one night late in his study, fainted. And lying on his face with a copy of the New England Gazette clenched in his fist. You see, Shepard had a friend who was a preacher. And it was no secret at all that his friend's sermons were much preferred to his sermons. And, and uh And almost everyone preferred to read his friend's sermons over his, which is why his friend's sermons were printed in the newspaper. You might well have expected Thomas Shepard's sermons to be printed in the paper because of his position and place. But no, people didn't want to read his sermons nearly as much as they wanted to read his friends. And in that particular issue of the newspaper, Clenched in his fist, there was a particularly fine and beautiful sermon written by his friend. See, Shepherd's temptation to envy was so strong, and therefore his war against that passion so brutal that it, it took everything out of him, even his consciousness there in the study. But Shepard knew the force that was at work in his heart behind that envy, the sin behind the sin, and therefore where the war must really be fought and waged. So at another point in his life, Shepard wrote in his diary this, kept a private fast for the destruction of my pride. Pride Arrogance, these are antithetical to love. And and to see that, we need look no further than Jesus. If anyone ever had the right to boast, if anyone ever had the right to be arrogant or proud, certainly it was Jesus. It was God the Son, through whom and by whom all things were made. Eternally co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, praised by the angels And just men made perfect in glory. Jesus had it all. But did he ever boast? Was he for one moment of his life, either heavenly or incarnate on the earth, for one 
nanosecond. Was he arrogant? No, just the opposite. Contrary to being arrogant, he humbled himself. He lowered himself. He became a servant and entered into our world of suffering. He became one of us. He did not lord his lordship over anyone, though certainly if anyone ever had the right, he did. Now, as we heard in the assurance of pardon just this morning, didn't we? He humbled himself, becoming obedient, even obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Why? To save us, to, to give us, to give, give proud, arrogant people like us. And if you don't believe you're proud and arrogant, you try for a solid 24 hours not to be, and you'll find out just how proud you are to give us eternal life. That's love. And now Jesus calls you and me to love that way too. He commands us. He says, deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus comes and bids us to die. That's his call. But pride doesn't want to die. Pride is very uninterested in dying. It wants to live. It craves life. It craves attention. It craves praise. And if not praise, at least pity. We'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus was born in Nowheresville, he died in obscurity on the dusty outskirts of the Roman Empire, unsung, unrecognized, unknown by anyone but a rabble from Palestine. This is what love does. Rather than seeking its own recognition, it dies to itself. A loving man, a loving woman dies to himself, dies to herself in the course of loving others, in order to love others. This is precisely what the Corinthian Christians, or at least the majority of them apparently, were utterly unwilling to do. They were puffed up. They were full of themselves, full of pride, which explains why their congregation was hamstrung at best, utterly dysfunctional at worst. Pride was crippling that church. They really thought that they were all that. They thought themselves spiritual hotshots. Remember from earlier in this letter the occasions of their pride. In 4 verse 18, Paul wrote, Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now, why was that arrogance for them? Well, either they didn't believe that Paul had the guts to come back and face them directly, or maybe they were reasoning, why would Paul come here? Why would Paul bother? We don't need him because we've arrived. We've got it all. What use have we for Paul? We've had all the best teachers. We've had uh, Cephas. We've had Apollo. We've had Paul. We, and we know it all. So we remember the sarcasm, don't we? Paul had to employ earlier in that same chapter to make his point. Writing, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. My, my, my. He was poking at their, their puffed up heads with the, uh, the needles 
a verbal uh, response. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says, but you, oh, you're so wise in Christ, aren't you? That's what pride does. It makes us think we're so smart and so wise. So all that. When in fact pride given reign in our lives makes us fools, makes idiots of us. And whatever the opposite of all that is. Only we can't see it. Because pride blinds us to ourselves and to our own pride while to everyone else around us. It's as plain as the nose on our face. Remember how smart they were, they thought they were, especially in spiritual matters surrounding the eating of meat offered to idols in chapter 8. Paul points out, oh no, (laughs) knowledge puffs up. The kind of knowledge you people think you have anyway. Love builds up. And good grief, remember how they were even arrogant about sex. They tolerated a kind of sexual immorality in their own midst that even the pagans would not tolerate. They not only tolerated it, they were proud of it. We read to our astonishment. No wonder we read in Proverbs that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. When pride comes, then comes the fall. That a man's pride shall bring him low. Pride not only gets in the way of love, my brothers and sisters, it kills it. It isn't it curious that the opposite of love here in Paul, uh, right here at the center, is, is not hate. It's, it's, it's pride. No wonder C.S. Lewis calls it the essential vice The utmost evil. It's the vice behind every other vice, isn't it? It sets us against one another, choking and killing out love, making true love uh, impossible. Here is Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Now think, my brothers and sisters... About us here. Think about this congregation. Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else for being the big noise. Now, what you want to get clear is the pride is essentially competitive is competitive by its nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich, or clever, or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. Greed may drive men into competition if there's not enough to go round. 
But the proud man, even when he has got more than he can possibly want, will try to get even more just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world that people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. Lewis goes on with an example. Take it with money. Greed may certainly will certainly make a man want money for the sake of a better house, better holidays, uh, better things to eat and drink, but only up to a point. What it is, what is it that uh, makes a man with 10,000 pounds a year anxious to get 20,000 pounds a year? It's not greed for more pleasure. 10,000 pounds will give all the luxuries that a man can really enjoy. It's pride. It's the wish to be richer than some other rich man, and still more the wish for power. For, of course, power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing makes a man feel so superior to others as being able to move them about like toy soldiers. Pride is competitive by its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery of every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Now we can see all that, can't we? Looking back at our fathers, our fathers and mothers in Corinth. We can see all of that plainly in hindsight. Remember that pride uh, doesn't make us blind to other people's sins. It makes us blind to our own. So how are we going to search this out? How are we going to... Find pride and kill it. What are we looking for? Certainly those annoyances of which Lewis writes, uh, when when we're annoyed that someone else got the attention that we think we should have gotten. Remember that pride and envy are closely related. and, And by that competition for attention, that comparison that our hearts make, so quickly, so quietly they do, you know they do, between yourself And him, or her, or them. But here's one more clue, and Paul supplies it to us right here in the text. Boastfulness. Love does not boast. The Greek word comes from the root word, a root word meaning windbag. Boasting is is the hot air that comes out of the mouth of the arrogant windbag. It can take the form of bragging, of course. I did this, I did that, and so on. You remember that from the childhood playground. But grown-up windbags often get much more sophisticated. They get much better at this. 
It's not that they brag directly. Of course, they know better than to do that. They know that sounds infantile and juvenile. Instead, they carefully turn every conversation in a direction suitable for them to flag their erudition, to tell you what they know, to uh, show off their knowledge and their experience, to make themselves look smart or important or impressive in whatever way they can, but most importantly, to make themselves look smarter than you or for you to make yourselves look smarter than they. That's, that's how it works, how pride works in conversation. Now, some people walk away from such conversations impressed by what they've heard the proud man say. My, 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 isn't he smart? Boy, he knows all sorts of things. I'm impressed. Other truly humble people are able pleasantly to continue in the conversation and smile and go along. I grow very weary of it, to tell you the truth. I grow tired of people trying to make themselves look smart. It wears on me. The conversation is obviously not about loving. It's not about mutual interest. It's not about caring for others. It's all about upstaging. It's all about impressing. But what I hate most about such conversations is this. They awaken my pride. They always do. They make me want so much to do the one-upmanship thing. You know, you think you know that. Well, let me tell you what I know. The problem with that always for me personally is that I can never win those conversations. I'm not bright enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not experienced enough. And so it only gets uglier and uglier because now my pride is welling up in me and it remains unfulfilled. And it disgusts me. It disgusts me to see my pride rearing its ugly head because these conversations remind me that I am not a humble man. That if I could one-up the person in the conversation, I most certainly would because I'm that arrogant. And it sickens me. And that's the double edge that pride drives between people. Kills love in the process, pride breeding pride, wherever it goes. Well, because I'm the one preaching at the moment, I've got to ask you this, ask you to ask yourselves, what is the topic of your conversations when you speak? Think back on your conversations. Think back on your conversations in the hallway out here in the narthex. What is the topic? What is the focus of your... Is it you? Is it what you know? What you think? What is your motive when you open your mouth? What comes out? Here it is, isn't it? What's going on in your heart? Is everything about you, about this, how this matter or that matter, this event or this person affects me, serves me, accomplishes my purposes, my desires, 
That's the voice of pride, dear flock. And it's a love killer. It really is. It doesn't love others. It uses them as a foil against which I show how impressive I am. You cannot love someone if you're using them for your personal purposes. And that includes using them for pity, by the way. I told you we'd come back to this. Self-pity is just pride inverted. Your conversations may not always be about how great you are. They may always be about how miserable you are and how wounded you are. How ill-used at work or at home. Poor, poor me. Look at me. That's pride too. Believe it or not, that's, that's pride because it's all about the same thing. It's about me. If it isn't praise me, then it's pity me. But at the end of the day, it's me. How can we love anyone else if we're so deeply in love with and focused on ourselves, on my life, on my situation, my needs, my desires? Pride renders us incapable of love. And that is why, by God's grace, we have got, my brothers and sisters, we've got to kill this. We've got to mortify it. We've got to put it to death in our hearts. And one of the best ways for doing that, for choking out pride, is to... Replace it with its opposite grace, which is, of course, what? Humility. Yes, humility. But humility, you see, that takes work and that takes practice. It does not reach for the best seat, but purposefully takes the back one. Humility is something you have to practice to perfect, like most anything else. And to follow Paul here, it means that you have to learn to keep your mouth shut about yourself and from spilling over things that you think make you look smart or better. If you must speak, then say something instead at your own expense or better yet, in praise of another. Those are the things that we want coming out of our mouths. One godly man after another has had to instruct himself over the centuries with words like these or similar ones. Talk not about myself. Or be ambitious to be unknown. And Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating Myself. And here's a bit of timely instruction that uh, counsel that I read recently. We live in the age of Facebook and Twitter and are fast becoming a nation of people and Christians among that people who seemingly must talk about themselves constantly as if the world breathlessly awaits the next tidbit of information about our lives or the next deliverance of one of our opinions. If you are making use of such so-called social media, 
It would be healthy for you to remind yourself. Perhaps you need to put a little sticky note next to your computer right there on the monitor so that every time before you hit post, you're reminded that virtually no one is as interested in reading about you and what you have to say than you are. Remember St. Francis of Assisi, who once he'd become a celebrated figure and an object of constant adulation. He said to have assigned to himself a monk and with this task to remind him how little he deserved all the praise he was getting. When someone told him, oh, Francis, you're so wonderful. This monk's job was to whisper in his ear, Oh, don't you believe it. You are anything but. It's going to be hard work and it's going to be painful work. Pride wears its nerves on the surface. When you start cutting at it, oh, it hurts. But if you would love, if you would truly love, if... Let me put it this way. If you would love the way Christ loves, pride has got to go. And humility take its place. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. Amen.